I invite you to open your Bibles to Esther, the book of Esther, for a few moments tonight. In fact, I'm going to do something that I rarely am able to do. And it's it, some of you that are in classes that I teach, textual classes, um, are not going to think I can do it. But my goal tonight, I want to give you an overview of about four chapters in the book of Esther. So put your seatbelts on and let's study, uh, study together. I love to do character studies because I think we often learn from learn a lot about ourselves or learn lessons that we need to learn from studying even about people in the scriptures, not just doctrines, but about people. And sometimes we see things in these characters that that may help us see ourselves or see some things that that we need to see. And the character I'd like to study with you tonight is by the name of Haman. Haman. And so we're going to begin in Esther chapter 3 and study about, about Haman. The, the historical background here is that God had, as God had promised, many of the Jews have been able to, to go back home to Judah. In fact, at least one, perhaps two, waves of, of Jews have gone back. But there are some who have stayed in, in the east. There are some still living in Persia, some who are doing well and, and are who, who are not yet ready to go back, back to Judah. And we find Haman or Mordecai and Esther being two of those. Persia is now the dominant world power. And Ahasuerus, known in history as Xerxes, was king of Persia. Ahasuerus was the one that selected Esther to be queen. Esther was a Jew. However, Mordecai, her cousin, some say her uncle, had instructed her not to reveal her identity as a Jew. But the fact that she is a Jew and that there are Jews living in Persia at this time is important to understand what, what's going on in this, in this book. We'll pick up in chapter 3 with our first introduction to a man named Haman. Verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And this is our first introduction to, to Haman. We don't know anything about his past except for what we read here. He just comes onto the scene. But notice as he comes onto the scene, he is promoted to a seat above all the princes who are with him, which would indicate that he is the second most powerful man in Persia. By the way, we're studying about Haman because he gives a great case study on the perils of pride. But as far as the record goes, Haman's appearance is sudden, but he's suddenly elevated to this powerful position in this powerful empire empire of Persia. But there's something that bothers him. Notice verse 2 of Esther 3. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and, and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And they kept talking with him more and more, but he refused to bow down to Haman. 
And all that he had told them was that, that he was a Jew. Why did Mordecai, the Jew, disobey the king's command? Why did he choose not to bow down to Haman? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown offer this explanation in their commentary. Had the homage been a simple token of civil respect, Mordecai would not have refused it. But the Persian kings demanded a sort of adoration, which is well, which it is well known, even the Greeks reckoned it degradation to express. And as Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, in the height of his favoritism, had commanded the same honors to be given to the minister, to Haman, as to himself, this was the ground of Mordecai's refusal. In other words, they're suggesting that this homage that was to be paid to Haman, Mordecai, his thinking was that kind of homage belongs only to one, and that is to God. And so he refused to bow down to, to Haman. It's no surprise then Haman's reaction, verse 5, when he saw that Mordecai did not bow, bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. He was angered. And so he has a plan, verse 6. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. If Mordecai refuses to bow down to me, then perhaps all of his people will. And so Haman is so filled with anger that he wants to destroy not only Mordecai, but Mordecai's people. Notice some perils of pride in Haman. Number one, pride causes one to allow promotions to go to one's head. Isn't that what has happened with Haman? He's been elevated to this powerful position. He has the whole empire bowing down to him except one person. And that is what consumes him. Everyone, even Mordecai, should be bound down to me. Number two, pride often leads to anger, especially if one does not feel that he or she is getting what he deserves or what we, what we, what we want. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time when we become angry, it is because we have felt ignored or we have felt mistreated or we have felt that one Something that we wanted didn't come to pass. We see it in Haman. How it, his pride led to anger. And number three, pride magnifies the problem. The problem was of all the people that were bowing down, there was only one that didn't, that was Mordecai. But he said it was not enough just to punish him or destroy him. He wants to destroy all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews. And remember now, Esther, the queen, is a Jew. But here's Haman's plan. He plots to, in fact, he casts the lot. He casts poor, we read beginning in verse 7. And it's probably like rolling a die to see upon what day and upon what month that he would implement his plan to destroy Mordecai and all of his people. And he presents his plan to the king. So we see in verse 8, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. 
Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. Here's an application, a peril of pride. Pride can move one to use deceptive tactics to achieve one's personal ends. Is Haman being deceptive? I find it interesting that he doesn't mention who the people are. He doesn't say it's Mordecai, the Jew who refuses to bow down. And because of that, it must, he must represent all the people and how they feel. And King, they're a real threat to you when really Haman has been the only one that has suffered, if you will, because of Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. But, but Haman wants him destroyed. And so Haman is, is phrasing his wording, phrasing his request in such a way that the king thinks Haman's looking out for the king's best interest when Haman is really only thinking about Haman. So if it pleases the king, verse 9, let a decree be written that they may be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. I don't know if you have explanatory notes in your Bible, but for this amount of 10,000 talents, in my study Bible, it has uh, an estimated value of 3840000000 dollars. And that caused me to stop and think. Haman is saying if you'll... Make this, make this decree to destroy all this people on this certain day, the 13th day of the 12th month, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. I will pay over $3 billion into the king's treasury, being the modern day equivalent, if you will. And it caused me to ask, did Haman have this much money? I don't think so. Or was Haman planning to confiscate the property of the Jews and give it to the king? And that's where I tend to lean. He's thinking I can destroy this people, confiscate everything that they have, and put that to the king's treasury. But he's making it appear it's in the king's best interest, and he'll benefit, the whole kingdom will benefit from it. And so the king is sold, and so he gives his signet ring to Haman to make this an official decree. And so notice with me in verse 13, the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their possessions, to kill, to, to destroy to annihilate a whole people. That's how consumed Haman is with wanting to get rid of Mordecai. The response of Mordecai goes into chapter 4. And he, is, is, he tears his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, a sign of mourning. In fact, wherever that decree is sent, the publication is sent and it's read throughout that vast empire, all the Jews respond in the same way. There was great mourning, verse 3, among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And it's reported to Esther about 
Mordecai's response here and why he is in sackcloth and ashes. Notice with me verse 7 of chapter 4. And Mordecai told him all that happened to him. This is to Esther's uh, messenger here. And the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan or Susa, the capital, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So now Haman is saying, Esther, you've got, or Mordecai is saying, you've got to go in. You've got to go in and make supplication. You've got to go in to the king to plead for the life of all your people. But she's reluctant. You remember why? She's reluctant because you didn't just go in and speak to the king. He had to hold out his scepter if if you were a welcome guest. And if he didn't extend his royal scepter to you, you weren't welcome in his presence. And you'd be ushered out of his presence. And it was a matter of life and death. So she's reluctant. But notice, and these are some of the key verses in the whole book. Verses 13 and 14 of Esther 4. Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. If you don't do something, don't think you're going to be spared. You're going to perish along with the rest of your people. But then he asks this famous question, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther agrees to do it. But she asks that for three days, her people pray and fast for her. Chapter 5. She goes before the king. Can't you imagine her heart pounding, not knowing whether or not she hadn't seen the king for a while, if he'd be willing for her to come into his presence. But she stands and and makes it known that she wants to come before the king and, and... Delightfully, he holds out his scepter. What shall I do for you, Esther, he asks. What shall, what is your request? It shall be given to you up to half my kingdom. And he's going to repeat that. It it shows you how much he favored Esther. But Esther's simple request is this. You and Haman come to my banquet that I've prepared. And so he sends for Haman and they come to the banquet that has been prepared. And again, again, the king asks, what is your petition? What is your request? It shall be given unto you up to half my kingdom. And she hesitates here and makes this simple request. You and Haman come back tomorrow for another feast that I will prepare for you. And I will let you know what my request is. Now look at verse 9. Of chapter 5. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. And I'm I'm going to share with you what I'm thinking Haman is thinking at this point. Just two people have been invited to the queen to a feast. One is the king and the other is, is Haman. 
And I'm thinking Haman is thinking, wow, I'm I'm a special person. Not only do I have this elite position in this vast empire, but the queen has invited me to come to this feast and wants me to come back. She enjoys my presence so much. She wants me to come back tomorrow. He went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But whom does he see? But when Haman saw Mordecai, In the king's gate. And that he did not stand or tremble before him. He was filled with indignation against Mordecai. He was feeling great. Enjoying the day. Proud of himself as always. But when he saw Mordecai refusing to bow. It just consumes him again with anger. He calls his friends and his family together. You see... Look at verse 10 with me. Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, all the ways in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her Along with the king. Here's an application that pride boasts to others. This is his friends. This is his wife. They know how he's been prospered. They know about his promotion. They know about all the blessings that he has. But he recounts them again to them. But it's really to set the stage for this comment in verse 13. Yet all this avails me nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. All this, all this prominence, all this power, all this prestige means nothing to me as long as that one Jew, Mordecai, refuses to bow down. Again, wouldn't you agree? He's consumed with himself and consumed with this, with the fact that Mordecai refuses to bow down. His wife Zeresh speaks up. And all of his friends say, well, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. And in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And I think this is an appeal to his power. And perhaps she also included with this, with this suggestion, Haman. You're the second most powerful man in in the empire. Don't you think you have the authority to to get rid of this man? Build a gallows 75 foot high. 75 feet high. Bruce has been measuring the outside of the building to the top of the steeple to have it cleaned. And he's estimating... Maybe 40 foot, maybe 50 foot to the top. But that gallows was 50 cubits, which means 75 foot high. Let that gallows be made. Hang him on it. And I'm sure the idea was on that height of a gallows, all the people would see. And thus you'd be able to say, this is what happens to those who refuse to acknowledge my greatness. And so he proceeds with the plan. I think his workers are up all night building this gallows 
upon which to hang Mordecai. Chapter 6. I love this. The king can't sleep. And so what do you do if you can't sleep? Some of you might, might read. But you don't want to read anything real interesting because it'll keep you awake. So you want to read something, something boring. I can't help but think that that may be what the king is doing here. So he calls for the, the records of the Chronicles, the book of the records of the Chronicles. Read it to me. Maybe it'll put me to sleep. But as it's being read, he's reminded that Mordecai had reported to the authorities how there were two men, two doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands, who had sought to kill the king. And Mordecai had reported it. And the king is thinking, that's right. Has he ever been awarded for doing that wonderful thing. He, he saved my life. Has he ever been honored for doing that? Nothing had been done. So he's thinking to himself, now, how am I going to honor Mordecai for what he's done? And he wants uh, some more input. And so he asks, well, who's out in the court? And about that time, in comes Haman. Now, what's, what's on Haman's mind? He wants to present this request to the king to hang Mordecai on this 75-foot gallows to get rid of Mordecai. That's what's on Haman's mind. But the king is told it's Haman out in the court. So the king invites Haman in. And the king asks him, this is in verse 6 of chapter 6, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And this is pride gone to seed. The king wants to honor someone, Haman is, is, is realizing. Whom else would he want to honor than me? So here he goes. Haman thinks the king wants to honor him, and he's giving him the opportunity to say how. And so here's Haman's answer, verse 7. Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor... Let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And I'm thinking... That Haman is saying, shall I give you my size for my robe? And the king takes Haman's suggestion. And he says, as you have suggested, you go and do this for Mordecai. Can you imagine how that... Did he faint? <laughs> did he... I'm sure it was written all over his face. If there's anyone that he would not want to be recognized nor to honor himself or have anyone else honor him, it would be Mordecai. So Haman has to go and do, get that royal robe, put it on Mordecai, put him on the horseback that only the king has ridden upon, take him throughout the city square, proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. And don't you know he's hating every single moment of this? 
You see, pride causes us to be self-absorbed. He's thinking, the king wants to honor me, so here's my opportunity to get even more recognition. And that's why he offers this recommendation. And now he's forced to honor Mordecai. And after parading him through the city square and saying, Thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. Mordecai went back to the king's gate, verse 12. Haman hastened to his house mourning and with his head covered. He doesn't want anyone to see how angry, how frustrated, how humiliated he is. But then, chapter 7, it's time for the second feast. Perhaps Haman is thinking, okay, the queen wants me to come to the feast. So his ego maybe is is being built back up now. But then at the feast, on that second day, the king asks Esther again, what is your request? Up to half my kingdom, it shall be done. And now Esther lowers the boom, if you will. Verse 3 of chapter 7. Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. And the king is, I'm sure, taken aback by this. And he asks, verse 5, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Who's responsible for this? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. It says, the next verse says that the king went out, out of the palace into the, to the garden. I'm thinking he's so angry he had to get away for a little bit. But when he comes back in, he sees Haman pleading with Esther for his life. And he's fallen over the couch. And it looks like he's trying to harm her or something to that nature. And he says, now, verse, verse 8, we read, When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. The king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? And as the word left the king's mouth, here's his entourage. When he utters that statement, they covered Haman's face. That's that's signifying his doom. The king has spoken against him. The king has suggested, is he trying to assault the queen? So Haman is indicted. What shall be the punishment? What shall be done to this man? Verse 9. Now Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, 75 feet high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. Hang him. Hang Haman on it. The peril of pride is, as Proverbs sixteen eighteen states, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Verse 10, so they hanged Haman 
on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. The last application that I'll make is this. Pride is self-destructive. Pride is self-destructive. A good case study on pride. Do we have the problem with pride that, that Haman does? Perhaps to not that degree. But let me remind us that at the root of all sin are pride and selfishness. Sometimes Haman's story may hit too close to home. Realize that, that we've been affected or we've manifested this prideful attitude. I close with James chapter 4. Verse 6 says, He gives, God gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, in order to follow Jesus, we must get rid of pride. We must humble ourselves before him. As he would say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. There's no room for pride because he has to be number one. Perhaps tonight you're ready as Gabriel made those steps this morning to become a child of God. It's going to require humbling ourselves, emptying ourselves of self and putting Christ on the throne of our hearts and being obedient to his word. If you desire to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight, if you desire, desire the prayers of the church, please let that be known as together we stand and sing.